This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. I'm sure we've all been let down by someone at some point, haven't we? Someone said they would do something that they didn't. Uh, someone said that they would be somewhere and they weren't. Or someone said they love you and it feels like they don't. And there's a cumulative effect to being let down over and over and over, isn't there? And the more you're let down by others, the less you trust others. Right? Fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. And each occurrence, each time we're let down, it shakes us, doesn't it? It erodes our trust in others, and it leaves a scar Scars that tell stories, scars that serve as reminders of how others have let us down, of how others have hurt us, of how others have abandoned us. And so we separate from others. We isolate ourselves. And not only do we do that with others, we do that with God as well. And see, when it feels like God has let you down, when it feels like God isn't there for you, when it feels like God fails to live up to your expectations of him, we begin to lose trust in God. We begin to question his love and doubt his promises, don't we? Questioning that he is who he says he is, that he is sovereign, doubting that he'll do everything he's promised to do, that he is faithful. Advent is a season that tests our faith and trust in God, I think. This morning, as we continue Advent in the prophecy of Isaiah in our series, For Unto Us a Child is Born, here in chapter 7, we're going to see King Ahaz face a test of trust. As his faith and trust in God, they're tested, and they're going to be tested by God. We're going to see Ahaz tested through a, a promise of God's presence with his people, and, and we're going to see God faithfully fulfill that promise, looking through this prophecy, through a historical lens, seeing how this was fulfilled in Ahaz's day, looking at it through a Christological lens, seeing how it, it points beyond Ahaz's day to, or beyond Isaiah's day to Jesus, to his first advent, to his incarnation, and then looking at it through an eschatological lens, seeing how it looks further out to Christ's second advent, to his return. In chapter 7, it takes place about 735 or 734 B.C., about five years after that incredible vision of the throne room that we saw last week in chapter 6. And Ahaz, he is the grandson of Uzziah, who was the king that we looked at last week in chapter 6. He is now the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And Ahaz wasn't a great king. He wasn't. Uh, it says in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28 that uh, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. And so you might be like, come on, how, how bad was he? He couldn't have been that bad, was he? Well, it says that he made uh, metal idols, worshipped them. He offered uh, offerings to pagan gods. But he was so bad, it says that he even burned his sons as an offering. And so can you imagine a nice fall evening and his dad goes to the kid and says, hey, hey, son, you want to have a fire tonight in the backyard? You want to go roast some marshmallows, do you? If you're that guy's kid, say no, by the way. Not a great evening in the backyard. Needless to say, though, God wasn't thrilled with Ahaz. 
And so we had his, his neighbors kind of start croaching in. They kind of started moving the fences in. And, and Egypt remained a threat to the south. We got a map here. here. Uh, you guys know I, I love maps. I just got a new globe uh, this week. I love maps. And so Egypt was a threat to the south, but there was this growing threat up to the north and to the east as Assyria, led by Tiglath-Pleser III, they were rising to power in the east. And so this was a tense time for this prized land bridge that interconnected the three continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. And, and sensing this growing threat, uh, Pekah, who was king of the northern kingdom of Israel, he buddied up with Rezin, who was the king of Syria, to defend against Assyria. So real quick, just make sure we're on the same page. Syria and Assyria, two different nations. We all good? Not the same? Okay, so they buddied up, they formed this alliance, and they knew they needed a little bit more muscle against these guys, and so they invited Ahaz to kind of join their club. And Ahaz is like, thanks, but no thanks. Like, everything's fine. Ahaz is that dog in the burning building meme, thinking everything's fine. I'm fine, we're all fine. Thank you, how are you, as Han Solo would say. And so what, what these guys did is they countered by making him an offer he couldn't refuse. And instead of putting a horse's head in his bed, they, they attacked. They, they invaded Judah. And Scripture says that they killed 120,000 men in a single day. And they captured 200,000 women and children. And as this army was nearing Jerusalem, like the king and the people were terrified. They heard the stories of what had happened. Verse 2 says that their hearts, they shook as trees of a forest, as a forest shake before the wind. Right? Remember in the summer when that storm front comes in and that temperature drops and the wind picks up and little hairs stand up. And so Ahaz, he, he began to fortify his city. He began to fortify Jerusalem. And so one day, he's, he's out looking over the water supply, preparing for this, this coming siege, knowing that they're only going to survive but a few days without water. And God, he sent Isaiah, he sent his prophet, and he sent Isaiah's son with him to go speak to Ahaz. And he says to him in verse 4, he says, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remelia. It begins with encouragement, doesn't he? He's like, I, I know you're afraid of these bullies coming in, but, but you don't need to be. Please, please don't. And he, he continues in verse 5 and 6 saying, because Syria with Ephraim... And the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. They thought if Ahab isn't going to join, then we're going to find a king who will. And their plan was to install a puppet king over Judah, a king from outside the line of David with one string tied back to Samaria, to Becca in, in Israel, and another string connecting back to Damascus, to Rezin, king of Syria. And so God, speaking through his prophet, he says to his king here in verse 7, he says, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. Right? I kind of picture like Isaiah there kind of standing like Gandalf in Fellowship of the Ring. You know, where he's, he's facing that big bar log, the big fiery monster, and he stands with his staff, you shall not pass. Did anybody else read it that way? 
Yeah, okay. Just making sure I wasn't the only one. He says in verse 8, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. Syria was going to fall, and the northern kingdom of Israel was going to fall with it. And he closes verse 9 saying, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So what God is saying to his king here, he's saying, turn to me. Trust in me. Build your faith upon me, upon who I am, what it is that I have done, and what it is that I have promised to do. And God says to me, he's like, I know you can't see this right now. I know you are so filled with fear at the looming threat coming upon you that you can't see it. But I see so much more than you see, for my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. I am sovereign. I am faithful. I've got this. I've got you. And that's what faith is, isn't it? Scripture says it is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, our faith is founded on the knowledge of who God is and not God's Wikipedia page, right? Not facts and figures about God, but an intimate relationship with God. It's founded on who God is and it's founded on what God has done, right? The creator of the universe, the maker of covenant promises, the liberator of his people, the one who protected them at the Red Sea, the one who provided for them in the wilderness, the one who dwelt among his people as a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. And God's saying to them, if your faith is founded on me, if it is founded on rock, bedrock, you will stand firm and there is no need to fear. You will not fall because I am with you. But if not, if your faith is built on sand, you will live in a constant state of fear. Your foundation will fail and you will fall. God, he says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, he says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good coming. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an inhabited salt land, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when he comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So I want to ask us this morning, wherever you're at this morning, what is your faith built on? Well, what is the, the foundation of your faith that you've built it upon? When, when the storms in life come, when the, the rains fall and the floods rise, when the, when the winds blow and they beat against you, who do you turn to and who do you trust in? Is it God or is it someone or something else? And not, not the God that you've created in your mind, not the God that you've heard about from the world, 
But God, as he has revealed himself to be through the the written word of Scripture, through the living word of his son, Jesus Christ, a God of grace and mercy, a loving and ever-present heavenly Father. See, the storms that we face in life, they test the foundation of our faith, don't we? They test us. They test our knowledge of God. They test our trust in God. And sometimes God allows storms, even sends storms into our life to tear down this facade faith that we have built on a faulty foundation. And when that happens, it's scary, isn't it? When you find yourself doubting, when you find yourself questioning, when you find yourself in that that, that crisis of faith, like for all I know, you're there right now in this very moment. It's scary. And what do we do when we're scared? We reach out for someone's hand, don't we? We reach out for someone's hand to help us shine light in the darkness. That's why we don't face these tests alone. We face them together, rebuilding our faith on a strong and firm foundation together. But Ahaz, man, he chose to face this test alone. And so who would he turn to? Who do you trust in? In verse 10, the Lord, he says he spoke to Ahaz. He, he spoke through Isaiah, right? Divine words spoken through a human mouth. And he says in verse 11, he says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. God's saying, ask me, test me. Ask me for whatever you want, whatever your heart desires, and it's yours. And yet this test, it wasn't a test of God, it was a test from God. It was a test of Ahaz's trust in God. And he says in verse 12, Ahaz responds saying, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Second time in 12 verses that we've seen Ahaz say, thanks but no thanks. Everything's fine. We're all fine. We're all fine here now. Thank you. How are you, God? Not only did he not trust his neighbors to the north, Israel and Syria, but to address his problem to the east of Assyria, but he didn't trust God either, did he? And notice here, um, he hides his lack of trust in God behind a veil of religion, doesn't he? Uh, Behind a, a mask of spirituality disguised as piety, right? His faith is nothing more than a facade. And he responds by one of the most frustrating things imaginable. He proof texts. He proof texts God. He, he, takes, he takes a word from God and he takes it out of its context and he twists it to say what he wants to say, to justify himself. And like we do this all the time, don't we? We take a verse and we slap it on a bumper sticker to make ourselves feel better. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All things. Not just that, we use it to justify our behavior. We use it to justify our sin. Let him without sin cast the first stone. Yeah, that's what I thought. Don't judge lest you be judged. Don't judge me. But not only that, when we proof text, oftentimes we weaponize God's word, don't we? We weaponize God's word shaming and objectifying others for their sin, elevating their sin as though they are somehow worse than us. 
wielding God's word like a knife held to their throat to control others, oppressing others. And rather than submitting to God's will according to God's word, we're supplanting his will by subduing his word. And what happens is that rather than pointing people to Jesus, oftentimes our proof texting pushes people further away from Jesus. We have been called to be people of the word, of the entirety of God's word, not people of our few favorite verses. Amen? And yet that's exactly what Ahaz does. He takes Moses' words in Deuteronomy 16 where Moses says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. He, he's twisting God's word to justify his behavior. But Moses here, he, he's referring to something different. He's referring to the story in Exodus 17 where God's people, after experiencing his miraculous protection, right, freeing them from Egypt, protecting them at the Red Sea when Pharaoh was pressing in, his miraculous provision, purifying undrinkable water, raining down bread from heaven. And immediately they start complaining about God again, asking like, God, did you just bring us out here to kill us? And, and Moses, like poor Moses, like he's fed up. He, he's had enough of their bickering, of their constant criticism. And he asked God, like, what do you want me to do with these people? I kind of want to take them back. And God says, Moses, do this. I want you to take your staff. I want you to strike that rock. And I'm going to make the impossible happen. I'm going to make water flow out of a rock. And the people are going to drink. The psalmist says in Psalm 95 that they tested God because they didn't trust God. But yet at the same time, we see in Psalm 81, God say, I tested you. God was testing to see if his people would trust him to continue protecting them, to continue providing for them. But the people, they were like, God, what have you done for me lately? They had forgotten. And like Israel in the wilderness, Ahaz, he had forgotten who God is. He had forgotten what God had done, and as a result, he didn't trust what God would do. And yet here is God giving him this opportunity to, to see his glory, to be reminded of who he is and he rejected the offer. God, God wrote him basically a blank check. And Ahaz tore that thing up. Like who in their right mind does that? Who, who in their right mind like turns down their debt being paid? Why would he do that? Fear fed by pride. He feared giving up control, even giving up control to a sovereign and faithful God. And his pride prevented him from listening. His pride hardened his heart and sealed off his ears. Because he'd already made up his mind on what he was going to do. And when you've made up your mind on what you want to do, you don't want to listen to anybody else, do you? No, he had already made up his mind. He was going to be turning to the enemy of his enemy, trusting in the Assyrians, saying to Tiglath Pileser III in 2 Kings 16, he says, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the kings of Syria in Israel who are attacking me. He closed himself off to God. But that's what we do. We close ourselves off when our mind is made up. Pride prevents us from listening because we fear being proven wrong, don't we? No, we won't listen. We won't listen to truth, even truth from God. Old Testament scholar John Oswald, he says in his commentary, if a man will not believe God, he will believe anything. 
was talking with a friend of mine who's a pastor the other day, and he goes, Ash, we're living in a world where facts don't matter anymore, where truth doesn't matter anymore. We will believe the craziest conspiracy theory imaginable while rejecting the simplest, clearest truth available. And I'm not talking about others. I'm talking about us, okay? We'll believe anything when we stop trusting God. And the thing is, the further down the rabbit hole we go, whether it's Facebook, whether it's YouTube, whether it's whatever, the more our provide prevents us from seeing clearly, the more our provide prevents us from thinking clearly. And when we have dug so far down that we can't even see straight, we need others in our life to speak truth in our life, speaking truth in love to help us climb back out of that hole we found ourselves in. And that's exactly what we see Isaiah do here in verse 13. He says, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? This, this generational disobedience, this lack of trust by God's kings, this constant criticism of God's prophets, it was wearing on Isaiah. And he was like, enough, I can't take it anymore. It's, it's trying my patience. And not only did it try Isaiah's patience, it was trying God's patience. And whereas we would give up and we would storm out, God stays, doesn't he? God stays because God's faithful to fulfill his promise of his presence to his people in spite of their faithlessness, in spite of our faithlessness. And look at what he says in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You won't ask the Lord, he's going to give it to you anyway. He is still going to show you who he is. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Finally, right? That verse y'all came here for? Finally, we got Christmas this morning. Isaiah prophesied of the birth of Jesus some 700 years later. But let's not rush from Isaiah 7 to Matthew 1, okay? Let's allow this prophecy to stand and speak for itself first. Viewing it through a historical lens, Viewing it as a prophecy, as a sign spoken to specific people at a specific time, okay? And so first and foremost, this was a sign given to Ahaz, wasn't it? It was understood as something that would be fulfilled within his lifetime, something that he would see. And unlike uh, Methuselah, Ahaz didn't live to be 969 years old, okay? And so he didn't see the birth of Jesus. So it must be referring to a mother in Ahaz's day. It must be referring to the birth of a son in Ahaz's day, of Emmanuel, of God with us, a sign of God's presence among his people. And so then the natural question is, who's the mother, right? Who's the mother? Who's the son? Who's, who's, the, who's the father? Where's the father? Now, most English translations translate the word here as virgin, a word that obviously implies a sexual history, or technically lack thereof, of, of this girl. 
implying something that the original Hebrew word actually doesn't imply. Uh, a better translation would actually just be young woman uh, of marrying age. And yet the Hebrew word is rarely used for a married woman. And so that, along with a few others, is the reason why the writers of the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament translation, they actually use the Greek word for virgin. And like, we could go on and on about this one word, and it's easy to get so fixated on this one word and the sexual history of this one girl that we actually miss the focus of the verse. The verse isn't about the mother, the verse is about the son. And so don't let that distract you. It's about the son. And since Isaiah gives us more than just this one verse that we love to read at Christmas time, you want to keep going? You want to see what else he says about this little boy? Yeah? I mean, we're going to eat away. In verse 15, he says, He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Now, to clarify, he's not talking about going to Wisconsin north of the border and getting cheese curds. Okay? That's like the only good thing to come out of Wisconsin. The bears, God willing, will come out of Wisconsin tonight with another loss. And hopefully Justin Fields having healthy ribs still. But now he's referring to here of this baby being born into poverty, of foraging for food like nomadic people, not, not living in a stable farming community. But unlike God's kings and God's people who were wearying and trying God's patience, this boy would be obedient to God's will and obedient to God's word. And before he reaches the age of accountability, it says in verse 16, he says, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Syria will be defeated. Israel will be defeated. Everything's fine now. And three years later, that's what happened. Syria fell to the Assyrians. Ten years after that, Israel fell. Problem solved, right? All good? He keeps going. Look at verse 17. It's kind of like I got good news and I got bad news. I'll give you the good news first. Here's the bad news in verse 17. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, since the day that the kingdom split into two. And it'll be done at the hand of the king of Assyria. The enemy of his enemy was still his enemy. Ahaz was playing with fire and he was going to get burned. He, he was trusting in a lion that was prowling around looking for someone to devour. Oswald goes on to say that whatever a man trusts in place of God will one day turn to devour him. Anything you trust over and above God, anything that you worship above God, it will turn on you, and it won't just let you down. It will devour and consume and destroy you. That's what idols do, and that's what the Assyrians did. They devoured Judah, and this was all God's doing. His sovereign hand was guiding every event. Look at here, verse 18 and 19. He says, in that day the Lord will, will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, these two encroaching powers. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on the thorn bushes and on the, all the pastures of your land. And then comes one of the most troubling verses in all of Scripture here in verse 20. 
In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, not just the head and the hair of the feet. I'm glad I'm not the only one with hair on my toes, by the way. I didn't notice that this week. I just kind of noticed that right now. I've always been a little self-conscious about that. I kind of look like a hobbit. That's why I don't wear flip-flops much. But then get this. You ready for this? Pray for me, guys. And it will sweep away the beard also. How do you guys like, you're just okay with this? It's the worst of the whole prophecy right here. Like, I was good shaving my head, right? I, I get that. I got a bald spot growing, okay? We got some brotherhood going here with those of us that are lacking in the, in the, in the top section, don't we? You know, we don't even have to have met each other. We're just like, we're brothers. I'm good with that, but the beard? Like, please, God, no, that would be humiliating. Like, I trimmed my beard last night and I cried, okay? Just trimming it. I didn't shave it. But a beard in Isaiah's day, it was, it, it was a badge of honor for a man. It was a sign of respect. And so shaving a captive's beard, it was a sign of defeat. It was a sign of disgrace. It was a sign of humiliation. And God was going to be the one doing it. That's exactly what Assyria in God's hand did. Ahaz's hired hand from beyond the Euphrates River, what they did to Judah. They ravished the people, Isaiah goes on to say. So few that just one cow and two sheep was going to be all that they needed to feed the people. They ravished the people and they ravished this land of a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels that would become nothing more than an overgrown land of briars and thorns. And so about now you might be thinking, okay, Pastor Ash, that's great. There's a historical context to all this. I get it. You could have just said that. Um, it's a sign given in Ahaz's day. Fine. You still haven't told us who the mother and the son are. When do we get to that? Now we get to that. Scholars have kind of identified three basic options for this. And if I could be Monty Hall for a second, I would like to show you what's behind three different doors, if you will. And you get to choose. And so behind door number one, we see the son of Zion. Remember, Isaiah's son, uh, Shir Jeshub, in verse 3, the one that went up with him to, ah, uh, to Ahaz when he was looking over the water, his name means a remnant shall return. And he's not just referring about a, a geographical return from physical exile, but a relational return from spiritual exile, returning to God, repenting of their sin. And so door number one is, is more of a figurative sign of Emmanuel, of God's presence among his people that have returned. Door number one is not the most popular door, though. Behind door number two, we see the son of Ahaz, the son of the king, Hezekiah, his son, who God was clearly with because it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was from the line of David, as Isaiah alluded to in verse 13, giving hope that this Davidic line of kings would continue, that God would be faithful to fulfill the covenant that he made with David in 2 Samuel 7. But the problem with door number two is that Hezekiah, we think, was about 10 years old at the time of this prophecy. And so he wasn't a child yet to be born. He was a child already born. Behind door number three, we see the son of Isaiah, a son that we see and meet here in chapter 8, where he says in verse 1, Then the Lord came to me. Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mereshalal Hashbaz. 
His name uh, is a lot easier to, what its name means is easier to say than his actual name. Uh, it means quick speeding to the plunder, swift and hurrying to the spoil. And what God says, I want you to write this name so big and so easy to understand that everyone will know this name. And he says in verse 2, and I will get reliable witnesses. God will. I'll get reliable witnesses. Uriah the priest, Zechariah the son of uh, Jebekah, to attest for me. These witnesses, they're going to come and they're going to see and they're going to understand. And then they're going to go and they're going to share with others. They're going to tell the good news of the birth of this baby. And he says in verse 3 and 4, he says, and I Isaiah now, I went to the prophetess. He went to his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, call his name Marshall Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. There's a striking resemblance there between verse 4 and what we read back in chapter 7, verse 16, isn't there? That before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land of the kings of dread will be deserted. And he's describing events that would occur in Isaiah's son's lifetime, during his childhood. And that's led many to choose door number three and believe that God spoke of uh, this child, this son of, of Isaiah, a sign of trust and of God's presence with his people, that their enemies would be destroyed and that their God could be trusted. But in the end, who was this mother? Who was this son in Isaiah's day? Well, door number three might have the best support in the end, to be honest, we're not sure. I'm going to say something you've probably not heard said at a pulpit many times. I don't know. At least not with the level of certainty I think we all desire or that I desire, and that's okay. Oswald continues saying in his commentary, he says, there's an aura of mystery about the Emmanuel figure. Can we just be honest? There's an aura of mystery about a lot of scripture, and we live in that mystery, don't we? We don't have it all figured out. That's okay. There's an enigmatic nature of the reference. It makes it extremely difficult to identify the child of Ahaz's time. And so if men and women over 2,000 years with a lot of letters after their name and degrees on their wall don't quite know for certain, I'm okay telling you I don't know for certain. And there's no mention of the father. There's only a vague reference to the mother, and there's no indication of a virgin birth in the Old Testament. So... It's okay that we don't know with certainty because that sign was given to that people. It was given to people who did see and who did understand and who were reminded that God was with them. That the sign, it was, it was a reminder of who God is, what God had done, and what God would promise to do. And so while we don't see clearly through the historical lens when we add the Christological lens, viewing this sign through 700 years, we begin to see more clearly. Because we see the birth of a baby born to a girl, betrothed to a husband in marriage, a marriage that had not yet been consummated. They had not yet come together, yet a one young woman still found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We see the birth of a baby whose adoptive father was to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
We see the birth of a baby that, that Matthew goes on to say took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, God among us. A baby whose birth the angels, a multitude of angels sang and declared would bring glory to God and peace to earth. A baby born in the line of David, in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. A baby born into poverty, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger because there was no room at the inn. A baby born to be worshipped by all from the, the lowly shepherds who came to see him to the, the wise kings who would fall humbly before him, worshiping Christ, the newborn king. Because in this baby, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell among us. As the eternal divine word who was in the beginning with God, as God, came and became flesh and dwelt among us, God with us. Because in this Son, we have seen the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. Because through him, God is reconciling all things to himself, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. This was a baby born to die. A baby who came out of love for you and me. And while we see Christ's advent through the Christological lens, we see his second advent through an eschatological lens, looking further out beyond our day. When we see Christ return as he ushers in the fullness of his kingdom, righting the wrongs in this world, restoring what is broken, reigning over a renewed creation, for behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And on that day when he returns, God will dwell with us and we will be his people living in the light of his glory. But we are people that live between the advents after his resurrection and before his return. And yet even now, God is with us, isn't he? Even now, God is with us. Because when the Son ascended, the Spirit descended. And now God not only resides with us, he resides in us. And so can we trust God? You bet we can. You bet we can trust God. We can trust that God is who he says he is. We can trust God has done all that he has said he has done and that he will do all that he has promised to do because all that God has promised will come to pass in and through Jesus, through his incarnation in the first advent and his return in his second for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Amen? And so, yes, we can trust God. We can trust that God is for us. We can trust that God is with us because the ultimate fulfillment of this sign of Emmanuel, of God with us, has come. And our faith and trust in God is strengthened by his spirit until he comes again as we cry out, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.